Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue on in our series on the Epistle of Philippians. And this series has been called Joy. How do we find our joy in the Lord? And uh, if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be reading a very important passage on Christ this morning. Let's stand together as we read God's word as a community, as the body of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, we're going to pick this up in verse 5 through 11. Paul writes this, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we are here in this this moment, in this city, in these dark times, uh, recognizing that we are here because of Christ who descended, took on human form, entered into human history, dwelt among us, showed us who you are, Father, died our death on a cross for our sins, and you have exalted him to the right hand, Lord. He is the one that we are here to worship, to confess. You are the one to glo- that we are here to glorify through that, Lord. And so during this time, help us to be a church that is uh, worthy, Father, of the calling of the name Christian. Help us to be a church that recognizes the importance of Christ coming into this world as a human being and what that has meant for us as human beings and our salvation. And so would you bless our time in your word, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. Now this morning we're going to look at two main points from uh, verse 5 through verse 11. And Paul is making one point about the church and humility. And he's also going to use that point about the importance of humility and unity in the church. And he's going to use that as a springboard towards talking about uh, how God became Christ and what the significance of that, how God dwelt among us in human form. And so we're going to look at two points this morning, the importance of church unity and the importance of humility towards that. And secondly, the significance of Christ becoming a human being. Uh, Church unity is very important. It's very important. Uh, Paul, as he spoke to the Philippian church, he had at least three types of church unity in mind. He wanted the Philippian church to be unified in terms of what they believed, in terms of how they related to one another, in terms of their common mission together out in the world. Have you ever been part of a church that was not unified? 
It was not unified in what they believed, not unified. Did People weren't getting along, not unified, kind of all over the place in terms of what they were about. Have you ever had an experience of church like that? It's very disheartening. You know, you can walk into a church, and some churches are less lukewarm. They don't care about the mission of God, about God. They're just kind of there. You can walk into certain churches, and, and you might just be there for the very first time, and you sense there's division there. You know, there's division between rich and poor, white and black, Asian, Hispanic. There's division between, uh, you know, all types of people. Just people just don't like each other. But you can walk into churches where there's division, where there's just a few that are elevated to the status of superstar in the church. And the rest are just kind of there. Paul did not want the Philippian church to be in disunity. He wanted the church to be in unity. And he recognized that the key to church unity is the choice that we all make to exercise humility. To exercise humility. He talks about this in verse 5. He says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there. Verse 5. He's talking about have this mind in yourselves, church, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about? What mind is he talking about? He's talking about what he was referring to in the verses before. If you look previously, he says that we are brought together in verse 1 in Christ. In the same spirit, verse 1. Skip on down to verse 3. He says that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul is very concerned about the Philippian church right now because he knows, as we've seen in Philippians 4, there were two women that were not getting along, uh, Eodia and Taichi in the church. And if you've ever been around church, you know that division that starts small among people in a church can often grow big. And so Paul wants to kind of nip this in the bud, and he says, Remember, we're all part of Christ. We all share the same spirit. And the manifestation of that, he says in verse 3, is that we don't come to church with vain conceit. We don't come to church with selfish ambition, thinking we're better than others, thinking only about our own interests. What can I get out of this? And and that's all that matters. He said in a biblically functioning church that's based on Christ, where there's common spirit, what is happening? The opposite. Where you and I relate to one another, what's happening? We're looking at each other and we're saying, you know what, Dennis, he's better than me. I esteem him higher than I am. Cynthia, I esteem her higher. I'm looking out not just for my needs, but the needs of others. He's talking about the key to church unity is humility. Humility is not a prayer request. It's a choice. Humility is not talked about in the Bible as, God, humble me. God, give me more humility. You actually don't want to do that. Because when God humbles you, that's not a pretty sight like we just saw. 
Actually, the choice for humility is a choice for us to humble ourselves. Humility is the highest of character virtues. Humility is always defined in relationship to other people. You know, you can't just sit there and say, I'm a humble person. If you want to know if you are a humble person, if you're exercising humility, what you do is you look at it in relation to other people. Am I esteeming others above myself? Am I willing to put their needs and be interested in their needs and not just my own? And this is very important in the Christian faith, you guys, because all the major religions will affirm the importance of humility. You can go to Buddhism, you can go to Islam, they'll talk about the importance of humility. What makes Christianity and the humility that you express through Christianity different than what Buddha said? Different than what Muhammad said? It's talked about in there. You know, you can go out to the world. I'm not convinced that the world is teaching us that we should be a more humble person. I actually see the opposite. I see a whole world that's saying, you know what? This in a capitalistic, individualistic, free society, and there's a lot of good things to that, right? America is Babylon, but it's the best Babylon around. What we're hearing is not humility. We're hearing pride, power, influence. That's what you're taught out in the world. Not humility. Humility is the way to not get ahead, is what we're told. Do I exaggerate? And so if we look at this and we say humility is of the highest character virtues, but all these different religions actually hold up the, the, the idea of humility, and the world is telling me the opposite, what do I find when I come to the Christian faith that is unique, that is talking about humility? You know, I, I think that's why Paul said, you know, when he's saying in verse 5, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is the mind? The mind is a mind of humility. But it's not just humility as a character virtue. It's humility in Christ Jesus. Now, when he says in Christ Jesus in verse 5, he is not just talking about the fact that Christ was humble, therefore we should be humble. Yes, that's true. He's talking about something much deeper. You go back to verse 1, we looked at a couple weeks ago, where he says, again, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, this is what makes the Christian faith different than Islam, Buddha, Buddhism, the world. The humility that we practice is not just the example of Christ. It is a participation in the Spirit. Follow me on this, you guys. The world's religions will tell you, be humble. It's a good thing. The world will tell you, don't be humble. Do the opposite and you'll get ahead. You come to the Christian faith, and what is it saying to you? Yes, it says be humble, but why? You should be humble because as you are humble, follow me on this, 
you have Christ, the encouragement of Christ. You have a participation in the Spirit, verse 1. And the exercise of humility and not, verse 3, selfish ambition and vain conceit. What that does, it is, follow this, allows the Spirit to work in your life. It allows the fruit of the Spirit not to be quenched, not to be grieved, not the Spirit, not to be quenched or grieved, but to produce the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit in your life. It allows the character of Christ to be manifest in your life. And so when we think about humility in the Christian faith, we don't want to just simply think about it as a character virtue, although it is. We want to think about it as the practice of humility, not being conceit, not selfish ambition, as it relates to other people, actually allows the Spirit of Christ to work in my life to change me. And that is the difference in the Christian faith. When you have a congregation that comes, I mean, David was just up here a few moments ago and saying, you know what? If the Lord has given us gifts, he's given us a heart for ministry. We should serve. And some of you, you might have heard that and say, well, it's my duty. It's a good thing. I want to be a good person as a Christian. And there's truth to that. But actually, it's something much deeper. When we look at this passage, when you're serving, you're humbling yourselves. You're taking the role of bondservant, of a slave to others. You're saying, you know what, I'm a slave to my Lord. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a servant, a slave to you in, a, in the best possible Christian way. And as I do that, Christ is at work in me. Christ is at work in me. We take the focus off ourselves, put it on Christ, put it on others, and it allows the Spirit of Christ to work in us and the church, and that is what brings church unity. We all get out of the way. And, um, and how that looks, right? I was thinking about it. You know, I, I usually show up after things are set up here. Um, but it's not because I, I'm not a servant. You know, I'm a pastor for 20 years. I spent eight of those years. And uh, now this is my third church. Eight of those years setting up before the service. And... Um, I thought, yeah, maybe I'll give others a chance to try that now. But uh, for all those eight years, I'd show up on my own, and, and uh, many times, you know, first one there and just setting everything up, or a lot of it. And, um, and then we started to get more people to help out. There's a lot of things that go on in a church that are the practice of humility that no one sees. And people serving in children's ministry, people serving up, up in the mountains this weekend, doing all all those things for the children. You may or may not be part of our ministry to Hope Gardens or Olive Crest. Beautiful things happening there and will be happening this year. You know, coming out to Lord of the Games a couple weekends ago. All of these things, that new believers class that we have in Cerritos, where several people have given their lives to Christ in the past couple months. This is what you want to see in a church. We're unified what we're teaching in the Word of God. We are unified in our relationships to one another. We are unified in how we move forward together. At what point do you say, I have had enough of experiencing the disunity of the world? I'm looking around. I see these people hating each other because they look different, because they vote different. 
because what masks they wear or what they don't. Can anyone make an honest evaluation of this world and not say, we're living in a time of extreme disunity. People cannot get along. And they haven't come to the conclusion that it's really inherent to the human heart to be hostile towards one another. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We have a dividing wall of hostility towards one another. We're not unified. So don't expect a law, a movement, a campaign to fix the human heart. What Paul's message here in verse 1 of chapter 2 is, it is Christ, his encouragement, his participation in the Spirit. And we get out of the way of that by saying, I'm going to look out not just for my own interest, but for the interest of you, my brother, my sister in Christ. What would our church look like if we all walked in the door and say, you know, I'm just going to assume that when I look at you and you and you, I'm going to esteem you better than me. What can I do to hold you up better than me? You know, I, um, you guys know that uh, my mom passed away in September. And, uh, you know, my dad had passed away in 2016. And so uh, we, we just sold her house. This is the house that she bought in 1967 in La Palma, and it was dairy fields. You know, I remember growing up, there were cows. I could smell the cows, right? And that, that was Orange County. Um, it's really interesting because I'm only 31 years old. I don't know how that worked out. But, um, and so we hold, sold the house, and then I got some inheritance money from that, okay? And you know what? If you really want to know what comes out of your character, you get money, and you'll know what comes out of your character, <laughs> Uh, whether it's inheritance or stocks or you just make a lot of money, right? Money is not a corrupter of character. It's really just a revealer of it. And so I've been asking myself through this period ago, how can I look out not just for my own interests, but also for the interests of others? And um, I've been acting on that as well. What is that like for you? Okay. What would our church look like if we all said, I'm going to esteem you above myself? Because Christ lifted me up. I should probably do the same. And so, I think when I look around at our church, we're not an arrogant church of vain conceit and selfish ambition. I think we're a good church. I think I can commend many of you for your affection and sympathy and love towards one another. And it doesn't matter how well-known our church is on the world stage. It doesn't matter how many bodies show up in this respect. I would rather have a church like ours that is unified, that cares for one another, love, affection, sympathy, holding up one another, looking out for the interests of others, not just ourselves, esteeming one. I'd rather have that than a megachurch any day of the week. And you know what, you guys? We've got that at this church. And that's what makes City Bible Church special, in my estimation. So Paul is talking about humility. He's talking about the importance of that at the Philippian church. I think it's something we need to remember here at our church. 
So that's the first point. The first point is Paul's focus on church unity. He's reminding the Philippians, he's reminding us that comes through humility, through Christ's example and Christ living in us. And churches that want to be unified practice humility towards one another. Second point in this passage. Now Paul's going to talk about, yes, the humility of Christ as God, as equal with God, and he came down in assumed human form, and there's a humility to that. But I also want to, I think he's making a larger point in addition to that. He's talking about the significance of the act of Christ's humility to assume human form and why that was important. Why was it important that Christ became human, a human being? Have you asked yourself that? I mean, we talk about the cross, right? The cross is important. It's critical. Jesus died for our sins. He, he, he experienced death so that we wouldn't have to. We talk about the cross. We talk about the resurrection to new life. The tomb is empty. Jesus lives within us for those who believe. We may die, what we may live, that even though we die, we will live. John chapter 11. The cross, the resurrection. Sometimes we don't talk enough about the incarnation. And the incarnation is Jesus as the second member of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, equal with God the Father and the Spirit, assuming human form. Why is that important? Why was the incarnation of Jesus important? You know the cross, you know the resurrection. Why was the incarnation important? Paul's going to talk about this in verse 6 and uh, following. He says, first of all, in verse 6 and 7, he says, Christ Jesus, verse 5, and then verse 6, he was in the form of God. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. That word grasped doesn't mean that he didn't know what it was. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus knew he was equal with the Father, but he didn't hold on to it. He didn't grasp it so tightly. He wasn't willing to let go of it to come down, and verse 7, let go of it by emptying himself and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's stop there. Verse 6, verse 7, Jesus was equal with God. He emptied himself. He was a servant. He was found in the likeness of men. Jesus was incarnated as a human being. Why is that important for us here today? How does that uniquely speak to our post-Christian context here in the 21st century? I think we have to become very versed in understanding why it is important that Jesus became a human being. And the reason for that is because that is going to be one of the largest, most significant questions that culture is asking today and will be going into the future. It's not so much why did Jesus become human, but culture is now asking the question of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? That, in my opinion, 
is the single most important question that, uh, you know, the builders are going to be gone pretty soon from this planet. I don't know how long the, ex the boomers will be here. I'm a Gen Xer. I assume I'll be here for a while. But when you look at the, the millennials and the Gen Zers, in my opinion, that question, what does it mean to be human? That's the central missiological question that will be posed to us here in the West. We see this already. You, can, you, know, you, you hear social justice voices trying to answer the question of what does it mean to be human by saying, there's no distinction between male and female. We're all androgynous. We can pick our own pronouns. We're all, you know, you can be gender fluid. It doesn't matter. There, that's, a, that's a conversation on what does it mean to be human that you and I are being inundated with. We turn to another corner and we see here the wellness people trying to address the question of what does it mean to be human. Hey, what it means to be human? Achieve your great potential. Think positive thoughts. Connect to the law of attraction. Uh, devote yourself to all these six or seven different areas of wellness. Make sure everything's going right with your relationships, your finance, your health, and your mental state. That's a conversation of human potential and what it means to be human. We look to these scientists. And these scientists are having a conversation on what it means to be human in the future. We're 3D printing human body parts now, right? We just sequence the human, human genome in 100% sequence it at uh, UC uh, Santa Cruz. It just announced this week. We're, we're looking at, you know, we hear from an Elon Musk and Neuralink, how he's going to put these chips in our brains and be able to affect our behaviors, right? And the merging of human beings, of technology, and we're going to be these androids, these synthesoids, that's a conversation what it means to be human. We hear other people, these spiritual gurus out there, Eastern mystics that tell us, you know, consciousness studies, how the mind works, opening yourself up to new universes through meditation. That's a conversation on the expansion of the human mind. And take your psychedelics, take your psychotropic drugs, Expand the human mind. It's a conversation on redefining what the human mind should look like and what it means to be human. We hear these metaverse astronauts out there saying that in the future, in 2030 or beyond, we're going to be these metaverse astronauts with our avatars where we work, play, earn, and find love in this virtual world of AR, VR, and XR. That's a conversation on what it means to be human in the future. And so we have all of these conversations. They're happening in our culture today. Which definition are you into? And so when we come to the gospel, when Paul's talking here about Jesus not counting himself uh, equality with God is something to hold on to, but emptying himself, verse 6, taking the form of a servant, being found in the like, born in the likeness of men. Jesus showed us what God looks like in human form. And this is the most important conversation 
in the conversation of what it means to be human. Do you ever think about this? Why did God have to become a human being? Why did, I mean, really, why did he have to come down and assume a human form? Did he really have to do it that way? I mean, God could have come to us like, he could have come as a robot. He could have come as a plant. He could have come as an animal to us. God could have come in just some ghostly, Casper the ghost form to us. He did not have to come as a human being. He could have done other uh, manifestations of himself. I mean, when I say he didn't have to, I mean, he had other options that were within the realm of possibilities. He had his reasons, though, right? I mean, why did God have to become a human being? Did he have other options? And why did God, when he came to be a human being, why did he come, become a human being to then have relationships with other human beings? Did he have to do that? I mean, God could have had the possibility of, of coming to us like a Greek and Roman God, the pantheon of gods, right? They didn't really have a relationship with human beings. They saw human beings as, you know, there to serve them. And there, there was no real connection in any way. I mean, God could have uh, done it like the Hindus. Like Hinduism is like 4,000 years old. You have hundreds of thousands of fake gods. God could have said, hey, I'm just going to come to you as one of hundreds of thousands. God could have just played with us like the atheist worldview. The atheists are like, I'm not sure there is a God. And then we get up, cross over into eternity, and God says, oh, surprise, I'm here. God could have done it in any number of ways. Why did God have to become a human being? He could have dreamed of other options. He could have thought of other options. And yet he did. He became a human being. Why? Jesus became a human being. Not primarily. So he could show us what it means to be a human being. He came to become a human being. For the following reasons. Number one, he came to reveal to us who God is. This is what Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. They all say this. That God was incarnated to show us the fullness of who he is through Jesus Christ. Everything that God wanted us to know about who he is in human form, we find in Jesus Christ. That's what the testimony of Paul and the writer of Hebrews says. God became human to show us who he is. A second reason, God became human because he wanted to identify and show us that he identified with our sufferings and our temptations. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, both say that. It says, no temptation is unknown to Jesus Christ. He says, let us turn to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because he can identify with our sufferings and temptations. The writer of Hebrews says, God did not come to show us 
what it means to be human as if his whole point, Jesus' whole point, is to serve some higher ideal of our human existence, our human ideas of, of humanity and human identity. I was having dinner uh, a few weeks ago in Santa Monica with um, Sebastian and Holland and Peter and Yunji and uh, another guy who's a filmmaker. We went out to um, my favorite Italian restaurants out there. And, you know, he, he's a professing Christian. And we got into a conversation about the role between art and faith and human identity. At, and at one point he said, you know, he, produ- he, he re- wrote and produced a, a film maybe about four years ago. And I saw it recently. So we were talking about his film. And I was talking about a particular scene in, in that. And then he said the following line to us. He said, you know, uh, what if human creativity and the Christian faith, what if it was meant to serve our identity as human beings? What, what, if, it, what if creativity and faith was simply meant to help us discover our humanity, help us discover who we are as human beings? And I replied back to that. I go, I say, you know, human creativity is a great thing. And faith is obviously the basis of, you know, what's going to determine our eternity. But we also have to be careful that we don't elevate our ideas of human creativity and the Christian faith. Actually, that we lower that and elevate the idea of human identity as if the whole purpose of Jesus coming into this world, the whole purpose of uh, us doing creative works in his good name, was simply to serve the idea of how we can have be more human in the ways that we are defining as human beings. And when we look here, and we look elsewhere in Scripture, what we discover is that when Jesus came in human form, and he was born into the likeness of man, in verse 8, and he's been found in human form. God wanted us to know who he was. Buddha can't say that. Muhammad can't say that. Spiritual guru can't say that. Only in Jesus. God wanted us to know that our Savior can identify with suffering. Our suffering. He can identify with our temptations. He didn't give in to his, his temptations. But he can identify with being tempted. And there's a third reason why God became human. And in verse 8, he said, And being found in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Some of your versions might say obedient to death. Jesus was not obedient to death. He was obedient to God, and that led to his death, but he was not obedient to death. It was God who led him to the cross. And it says, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the third reason why God became human. is because he had to take on human form to die on a cross. 
in, in, in Israel's history, God gave the Israelites this sacrificial system. It was laid out in the book of Leviticus and in the Pentateuch. All these different kinds of sacrifices that uh, God's people had to do. All these kinds of offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, guilt offerings, uh, offerings of thanksgiving. And, and, and the Jews, they, 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 they had to come to the tabernacle, and then they had to come to the temple later on. And they had to offer these offerings, or these animals. You know, it was costly. This is your pet, your lamb, you know, your ox. And if you can't afford that, you buy a pigeon if you're poor. And, and you would bring this to the priest as a thanksgiving offering, or as, as a required offering, or an offering, a, a guilt offering, or a burnt offering for your sin. And then the priest would take, lay his hand on the animal. He would take some kind of sharp object and he would slit the animal's throat in front of you. The priest would have, the priests were basically, the Levites were basically butchers. That was one of their functions, to be butchers. You would butcher all these animals and this animal that you had or bought would be killed and you would see that. I don't know if you've ever seen an animal die. I have. I mean, I didn't kill my animal, but I've seen like three of my dogs die my lifetime. Four, actually. It's traumatic. But can you imagine just seeing someone slit the throat, kill the animal, and then eat him? All right? And so the Jews knew the importance of sacrifice. They knew that something had to die for their sins. And so in the genius of God, he said, that's not going to do enough to wash clean the human soul. It actually has to be a human being. And only a human being can atone for the sin. I don't know who you're following out there on social media or who you're reading out there who lived hundreds or thousands of years before you. But I can tell you this. They did not atone for your sin. They might tell you some nice things about how to be a good person, how to be a more, you know, get along, how to tolerate with, you know, other people, how to succeed. They might have some you know, practical things to say about that, but they are not going to help you in the way you need and I need help most. Which is what? The two biggest problems that human beings have ever had throughout human history are the problem of evil, human evil, and the problem of human death. Those are the two largest problems throughout human history. Nobody has been able to solve those two problems outside of Jesus. And God sent him to become obedient to him to the point of death, verse 8, even death on a cross. You know, um, when we read this verse 8, death on a cross, right? Obedient to the point of death. I think I'm older than everyone here. Probably those of you that are watching. And um, I've mentioned this before, but... We don't think about death when we're younger. Your teens, your 20s, your 30s, it's all about the future. It's all about the present. It's all about the future. It's all about our hopes and dreams for our life. That's how we all are. And there's something to that. Because why? You look at your life and go, I've got most of my life, if I live an average life, ahead of me. There's nothing that can stop me if I just put my mind to it. And we know intellectually that death will come to us. We've seen people die in the past. We've gone to funerals of our parents or friends or maybe even family members. 
But we don't think about it happening to us. Not really, right? We know it's going to happen, but it doesn't really hit us in the gut. And then we start to get older. We start seeing not just, you know, our older relatives, people pass away. You start to see some peers. Hey, I went to high school with that guy and he's gone now. Well, what happened there? But death doesn't really become that real to us. I was doing a funeral on Friday for a friend that I, I went to elementary school with. And, um, you know, I, I hadn't really interacted with him for 35 years, but he knew I was a pastor. And so he asked me to do the funeral of his mother that passed away a few weeks ago. And so I did a funeral on Wednesday, uh, on, on Friday, at uh, Forest Lawn Mortuary. And I was just sitting there speaking to everyone. I think probably everyone there is an unbeliever. And, I, you know, all these tombstones are around us. And I just turned and I said, you know what? Look at these hundreds of tombstones behind us. We don't even know who these people are. And we don't even care, except, except for the person we're, we're bearing today. These people were somebody at some point. They built companies. They had kids. They had a fantastic love life. They had grandkids. They traveled the world. They did all these things. We don't even know their names. We don't even care. And they're gone. They're dead. And I just saw this man who was like in his 70s. He's just nodding his head. Because I was talking about death. I was saying, uh, death was not real to me until I went to the hospital in May. And I almost died. And I said, it was at that moment that death became real. Like when I was in the hospital, I had no doubt, zero, of where I was going when I died. If if that was it, that was it. I knew I'd be with the Lord, but I didn't want to die. And I was saying, I want to live, Lord. I got too much to live for. And I realized what a terrifying process death is. I mean, you might just get struck down by a car, a lightning bolt, an asteroid that falls on your head, and then you don't even know what hit you. But for a lot of us, it might be like a slow thing we kind of see coming, cancer, heart attack in the hospital and you're gone, whatever that is. And when you go through that process, like I had those five days to think about it, it can be a very terrifying process to think that that's the end. It's, it can be a very anxious process because you think, what? I don't want to leave behind my wife, my kids. There's so much about life I want to live for. And death becomes very real to you. And then I, I think about like a month ago when we were at Peter and Yunji's. And, you know, we had given a little Tokyo tour here, uh, which we do every month. It's about 50 people. We went over there and I told you guys, I got stuck in an elevator with 12 other teens for like over an hour. And, you know, I can laugh at it now, but I will tell you this. If you've never been stuck in an elevator with 12 other people and you don't know when you're going to get out and it's getting hot and sweaty in there, it's not. It's anything but comforting. When you feel trapped... And you hear people saying, I have claustrophobia in the elevator with you. And you're trying to keep the whole thing together. And it's getting hot and you see people sweating. And you're by the air duct hoping just to get some more air in there, right? It's a terrifying feeling. Now, we got out after an hour. 
But we could have been in there for hours and hours. It could have just descended down and down that whole situation. And that feeling being trapped, okay? Those experiences, the funeral, being in the hospital, the elevator, that, that was just like a small glimpses of what death could be like. You think about Jesus. That guy as God is equal with God, assumed human form. And he got trapped in a human body for like 30 years. It's worse than an elevator. Can you think about God becoming human form and you get trapped in a human body with all the, the, the excretions and, and the, the frailties of human existence? Why? He did it for us. He did it because he knew that the only way, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that it says that Jesus, who is the, we are to look to Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. He was obedient to God, Philippians 2. He did it for the joy set before him, to endure the cross, despising that shame for us. For us. You're here and I'm here. You guys, we owe it to God. We owe it to God and we owe it to God's people to be here, to be committed to God, to be committed to the body of Christ. This is why Jesus assumed human form. He said, you know what? I'm going to do this because I, I want you to know my Father in heaven. I do not want you to be in a whole other community of human spirits in hell. I want you to be in a community of real life human beings called the church. And I want you to be in a real life community of human spirits in heaven. And so I'm going to come down and I'm going to assume human form because I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you that God cares about you as a human being. And he relates to your sufferings. He relates to your temptations. He's going to cleanse you. I'm going to cleanse you of your sin. I'm going to show you who God is so that the most, the 99% of the people or whatever it is, probably 90% to be honest in this world, even though they say they're Christian, will miss God. And finally for today, he says in verse 9 through 11, God exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, heaven and earth under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And he says this in verse 10, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. Jesus is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. In heaven, all the saints are confessing Jesus is Lord. In heaven, verse 10. On earth, that we may confess Jesus as Lord. Not myself as Lord, not Satan as Lord, not money as my Lord, not my girlfriend or my boyfriend as Lord, not my kid as Lord. But Jesus is Lord. 
And we are doing that as a church. And under the earth, even those that are in unredeemed judgment in hell will have to confess Jesus as Lord and bow to him, to the glory of God. Jesus was the greatest spiritual astronaut that ever walked planet earth. He went lower than anyone had ever gone, God to human form, and he went higher than anyone will ever go to the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was the greatest spiritual astronaut we will ever know. And it is because of him that we've been brought into the orbit of the presence of God. And so let's declare that, you guys. We have the right answer to the question of what does it mean to be human. We have the God who became human, came into us in human form. And so let's live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1. Let's be unified. Let's live out of humility. Let's look out not just to our own interests, but the interests of others. Let's esteem others better than ourselves. And that's going to honor our Lord. Okay, let's pray together. Father, as we close now with communion, as we close now recognizing that we have been brought together as the body of Christ through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, we receive communion now as the body of believers. Lord, remembering how you have brought us to yourself, cast down the dividing wall of hostility that we have towards each other in the cross. And Lord, as we receive this, we examine ourselves, our need for Christ. And I believe, Lord, that as we do this, um, there is forgiveness. That there is a blessing, there is grace here in the act of communion. And so, Lord, let us bring ourselves to you and refocus ourselves in this moment on Christ and everything else that we are dealing with in the world, with ourselves, with other people. Uh, You're going to take care of that, God. We can trust you. And you are good. So bless our time, Lord. We come to the communion table. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.